0: Visit plannedparenthood.org/future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We are the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great Wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, 25 a month, every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible Plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.
1: Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Joining me today is Christina Navoa. She is a senior policy analyst at the Center for American Progress in early childhood. Um, I'm really glad to have her with me. Hi.
2: Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me.
1: So it's summertime. Um, it is. Just this morning, uh, some of my colleagues saw my adorable son here in the office, uh, and that is because his mom had a doctor's appointment and... He's not in school cuz it's the summer.
2: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and this right. is
1: this is one of like a million things that I never occurred to me until I became a parent. But I saw you had a a, a paper out on just like the basics of like childcare disruptions in the summertime. And I think it's a it's like a fascinating it's like we all know this happens that schools out for summer, but nobody ever thinks about the consequences.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um so I think a broader issue, we've been talking so much about how what a serious issue child care is Mm -hmm. in the United States. Um, Which it is. Which it is. Um, And I think a lot of the issues that we see around child care are kind of heightened in the summer months. Mm -hmm. And so what do we hear about? childcare throughout the year. Um, we know that there's an a, there's an issue around access mm-hmm. to childcare. Um, we know that there's issues around affordability of childcare um, and quality. And so all of these things kind of come to a head, but we just don't have a system in place that's built around it. We're still navigating under the assumptions of, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, that just no longer reflect the reality of families today.
1: Exactly. And that, I mean, that to me is like the summer issue is not it's not the only thing or even the most important thing but it's such a glaring example of the fact that the implicit background assumption is that everybody has a full-time stay-at-home mom at home because there's no other public service like i'm sure police officers would enjoy having three months off in the middle of the summer or it might be cheaper if you didn't have to make them work all year round Uh, but like you wouldn't do that, right? And yeah. we have schools mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we want yeah. children to be somewhere. And
2: we have two out of three kids of all ages have all available parents in the workforce. So this is not just an issue during the summer months, mm-hmm. um, even during the school year. Schools are closed with some regularity for teacher in services um, and for other sort of teacher trainings. Schools are closed, I think, for close to thirty days during the school year, Mm -hmm. Um, and that's just more time than parents have today than parents have off.
1: Right. So you got you got your winter break, you got your spring break,
2: exactly. Usually
1: your Columbus Day, your Veterans Day, (laughs) exactly. A couple teacher training days, Mm -hmm. and unless you yourself work in the school. You don't have those days off, mm-hmm.
2: and forty percent of parents, forty percent of workers, don't have access to to vacation, don't have access to paid leave, and so then you just don't have the ability to stay home. We're no longer living in an era where you have two parents, a stay at home, usually mom, and a dad who goes out to the workforce, and
1: and you know this kind of stuff. This is like a perpetual source of grousing from sort of the yuppie parents that that I know. Uh, but I mean, I think the point that you're highlighting too is that, you know, sort of my peers may not be thrilled about needing to burn vacation days on covering like sort of random teacher training exercises, but to a lot of uh, lower income working class families, they don't have like they don't have the vacation days all. to burn.
2: Yeah. Um, So I think one of the things that was really surprising to us in the study that we did. So uh, back in May, we did a survey. We surveyed close to a thousand parents um, about what their... Arrangements would be mm-hmm. for what they're what they were planning on doing for childcare during mm-hmm. the summer months. Um, these were parents of kids age zero to thirteen, mm-hmm. and we asked questions about how difficult is it to find childcare, how what are some of the barriers around childcare, what are mm-hmm. some of the arrangements that you're anticipating, mm-hmm. um, and are you planning on making any sort of changes to your job to right. your work schedule? Um, and one of the things that was really surprising to us in this study is we found. Um, we asked parents about themselves and also mm-hmm. their partner, their child's other parent. Um, and one of the things that was really surprising is we saw 57% of families that filled out our survey, that responded to our, to our survey, 57% of families plan to have at least one parent make some sort of job sacrifice Mm -hmm. that will probably result in a net loss of income. So what does that mean? That means things like uh, just cutting back on number of hours. Mm -hmm. Um, It can mean cutting back on number of days work or just taking unpaid leave. And so on top of just scrambling to try to find summer care, parents are kind of stuck between this rock and this hard place. Um, And there's really no good option. And that's because
1: people are relying, I assume, a lot on sort of family things and mm-hmm. informal arrangements that can't necessarily be there.
2: Yeah. For the whole summer, exactly. right? You might
1: you might have somebody who can help you out for 2 weeks and and that's a huge help, but almost nobody who's going to be able exactly. to do that the whole time.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And again, there was a a study from a couple years ago that the Census Bureau put out comparing childcare arrangements during the spring and during the summer. And one of the things that we saw there is The number, the percentage of kids that are no longer in regular care Uh just skyrockets during the the summer months. I think the number of kids that are no longer in regular care arrangements, I think, shoots up by a factor of four. It goes from, like, 10%, 11% to Uh 40%. And
1: so what what does that look like?
2: Yeah. So that means, you know, during the school year, like, think about it. Uh You have a young son. um, During the school year, he goes to pre-K. Yeah. And then, so what do you do in the summer? You sort of patch together, you have one person taking care of him for two weeks, then maybe you were able to get him into a summer care camp for a couple weeks, then maybe he goes to grandma's house. Exactly. You know, and so then this can have, this is not good for anyone, really. Uh On the one hand, like, let's see what what the impact is on parents. You know, you have, on the one hand, trying to keep tabs on where your kid is in any given week. Even during one week, we see a lot of times that parents have one arrangement Monday to Tuesday. Another arrangement is a half-day pre-K or half-day summer Uh enrichment program for Wednesday morning, and then you have to figure out what to do in the afternoon. So from parent's perspective, it's just juggling all of these logistics, Uh which also entails travel time and entails taking time off your work Uh um, and just... Keeping your sanity, trying yeah, to it's do mess. all this—it's a mess. Um, and then from the kids' perspective, um, we just know, especially you know, in the in, in the early childhood world, we know how important it is to have uh, routines. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure you know this in in, sure. in in parenthood. We know how important it is to have routines, and how important it is to have a caregiver who's sort of who sort of keeping tabs on the kids and what are what kids are learning. Um, a lot of these skills that kids learn early on. Um, they're additive, you know. So in preschool, you don't have kids that start learning right away. There's all of these sort of building blocks in early learning skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all grow on each other and they all they all sort of – they're all cumulative. Um, and so it's really important that you have some continuity throughout the summer, mo- summer months. Yeah, because
1: it, it looks to me like a lot of what they're doing in pre-K is not exactly teaching as you would with an older kid, like content – But you're teaching these kind of sort of meta skills, right? So it's like we're going to say now we're all going to be quiet and we're all going to sit down over here, right? And that's like – because to have a classroom where you were teaching, people need that, right? Like follow instructions, go here, go there, do an activity, stop and listen.
2: Yeah, these are all – you know, these are all school readiness skills, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think it's not just teachers – that right. teach that. This is something that parents teach. This is something that uh, good child care providers that are trained in child development and trained in early care and education know how to do this. And so I think also to be able to do that and also to be able to 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 cultivate these skills, you need some continuity.
1: And then the other thing is, you know, the I mean, there's the training and then this is the sort of the incentive structure aspect of it, right? I mean, when you're a parent, a lot of what you do is like, okay, this is a little bit of a harder way to sort of spend my Saturday afternoon, but I'm going to keep being this child's parent like next week, next month, next year. So it's going to pay off, right? Even in a school, right, the the child continues to be in the school year after year. So if it's going to be an effective school, like the whole team is working together to get people there. Whereas, you know, if somebody is watching some kids for two weeks... I mean like what what are they supposed to do exactly other than
2: yeah get through the day. Yeah, exactly. And then just to, just to add on that a little bit too. Um, you know, I think that this this idea of building on skills that are already developing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that that's such a that's such a critical part to early learning. Um and we know that that's something that is really hard to keep up during the summer months mm-hmm. for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um and so this is this contributes to what um Education researchers often call the summer slide. And so Mm -hmm. when you're out of school, you know, you're no longer in classes and you're no longer um, actively learning new skills. We see this a lot in in the K-12 literature. Mm -hmm. Um, We see some decline in uh, academic skills. And this is is a big driver in some of the academic disparities that we see uh, later on among low income um, and children of color.
1: Okay, so wait, can we break this down? Yeah. this is, okay, so in the summertime, people, kids all ages, they're not in school, mm-hmm. and so you're saying they backslide, basically. Yeah, so
2: that's called a summer slide. There's some newer research out there, but you know, I think uh, there's some evidence that kids across the socioeconomic spectrum um, see a de- uh, see a decline in math skills, mm-hmm. um, and mo- a lot of kids are able to to recuperate that, to win that, to gain that back mm-hmm. when the school year starts again. However, lower income children and children of color um, see declines in math skills mm-hmm. and in language skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have a harder time making that up. Mm-hmm. And so having high-quality, cognitively stimulating, academically stimulating uh, summer programming can do go a really long way in um, helping avoid and helping mitigate that summer slide yeah. and those disparities. So
1: I, I have a friend who's a principal at a at a school that's a, it's a heavily Latino school, a lot of immigrant parents there, and you know she says that obviously you understand if if the parents don't speak English fluently and it's not the language they speak at home with their children, um, then of course they like they fall back. Uh, over the summertime relative to what they're doing in the school and they need to be prepared each fall with each crop of second graders third graders to sort of go go back rather than pick up where they left off the previous year
2: right and i would say that it's not just necessarily uh, an issue that's only unique to dual language learners Mm -hmm. and to English learners, the kinds of things that that kids do during the summer can be very different, you know? And so I think that it's just important to make make sure that, coming back to the point of summer care, um, I think it's just important to have affordable high quality options that are available to families throughout the school year, including the summer months. Right. So so this is,
1: you know, gets into sort of possible solutions, right? Because there's like a number of different levels on which this is operating, right? Up to at the top, there could be like academically enriching stuff going on to, you know, somewhere at the bottom, there could just be like someplace that's safe and that you can afford and doesn't mm-hmm. disrupt everybody's... Jobs and and lives, right? And and right now, I mean, th- there's like literally nothing, right? Like anywhere you go, there's there's no public provision.
2: It's for tough. July and <laughs> August
1: of like what five, six, seven year olds are supposed to be doing.
2: You know, I was asking around some colleagues that have school-age kids mm-hmm. um, to learn a little bit more about what they're doing. You know, I'm based here in D.C., and mm-hmm. so I was learning a little bit more about what are the what are things that, that mm-hmm. families here in D.C. are doing. Um, and I was just hearing these stories about, you know, parents having spreadsheets about when different summer camps were mm-hmm. opening up uh, and just getting on, you know, having having – alerts and alarms on their phones when when a particular right. waitlist is open. so you know waitlist that filled up in the matter of minutes um and these are specifically i should say i'm talking about um programs that are available here in DC through the Department of Parks and Recreation mm-hmm. um so you know it's it's the scramble um i do want to say also that for as difficult as it is for parents here in DC right. a certain means trying to find something In through the parks department, for example, it's also more difficult for parents um, that have children with a disability. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was another story that I was hearing. Just uh, in general, parents of children with disability report feeling fewer options. Mm -hmm. And this extends to summer care as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, because they have some specialized programs in the school system uh, for, for children with special needs. But it's even so. So, DC, I think, is at least like moderately unusual in having these publicly run, they're not free, but they're cheap uh, summer camps, yeah. but they're organized by, by the Parks Department. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're quite good. I mean, people seem to enjoy them, but it's not the like mission of yeah, the Parks but- Department to do educational services. And they don't have the yeah. IDEA requirements and, right. and the other stuff. That's right. in the school system for, for children right. with special needs. And you
2: can only get, you know, two weeks at a time. And so then again, it's going to this this issue that we were talking about before, just this patchwork of care. You do two weeks here, a week at grandma's, and so on.
1: Right. And it's not organized to sort of sort of really fill the gap. Yeah. At this end, what I've heard is that D.C. Had, ran a few sort of experiments with year-round schools and – it cost a fair amount of money because uh, mm-hmm. obviously you had to pay people to do things. Um, the teachers seem to have really not liked it, um, even though, the, I mean, they paid them more. They, they're not crazy people. Uh, but they felt it wasn't, you know, it wasn't worth it. They, they sort of needed the break to de-stress. And also that the academic performance gains, like they weren't zero, but they also weren't they yeah. weren't spectacular. Um, so, the. I mean, the city seems to have decided basically it wasn't worth it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that, that this is something that you see. You just see kind of mixed results in this literature. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, I think that we don't necessarily have to go to that level. Uh-huh. You know, we don't necessarily have to look at solutions in Expanding the K twelve school year. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's certainly one response. Right. Um, but there's already some things in place because also in addition to that, if we're just expanding the K twelve school year, where does that leave younger kids? Right. Um, so there's a couple things out there, um, and I think it's it, it's just taking into account more what do we need to do around childcare throughout the school year, mm-hmm. including the summer months, mm-hmm. um, and this also includes before school care, after school care.
3: B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow dot com slash weeds. Okay,
1: let's talk about some policies. What's what's good out there? What's, what's going to fix these problems?
3: Yeah, sure.
2: Um, so I think one thing that's really promising is the Child Care for Working Families Act. Mm-hmm. Um, this is introduced in the Senate by Senator Patty, uh, Patty Murray um, and in the House by uh, Representative Bobby Scott. So this is a comprehensive agenda that helps make childcare affordable for low and middle-income families, um, and this is for families from birth to age thirteen. Okay. Um, we know once that kids come to kindergarten, you know, you still have considerations of before school care and after school care. So this makes childcare affordable for all families in that in that um, that age span.
1: And so, is this like a um... One of these sliding scale tax credits kind of things.
2: It is, and this is specific to different states. So families up to 150 percent of the state median income would qualify. Okay, um, and on average, that's a, for a family of four—you know, two adults, two kids—that's about a hundred thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars. And so families that are within that income bracket will will pay no more than seven percent of their income on childcare.
1: Right. So so that would sort of continue. Up, I'm trying to think about how that would work. Okay, so if your kid's like one, two years old, yes. right, you need like a lot of childcare. Yes, child care, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, infant and toddler care is incredibly expensive across right. the United States. And,
1: and then you know, depending on where you live, you may have half day or full day pre K, mm-hmm. probably kindergarten, mm-hmm. and then first, second, third grade. Mm-hmm. Uh, your your child care needs to start to drop a lot. Yes, uh, once, but, exactly. But they don't drop to zero. Right. That's what we're saying. So seven percent of your income means probably if you're at that like hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollar right, you're probably not gonna be spending seven percent of your income on childcare costs for a second or third grader. But you might if you were very low income. Right. So it's so it so it sort of phases out both up the income ladder and. As the kid ages in effect
2: yeah I, I mean i think the thing is like again i think Especially like in early childhood, mm-hmm. we're so used to thinking of childcare as something that is you need it for you need it until you can get your kid mm-hmm. into into the preschool right. or until you can get your kid into into kindergarten, and then you feel like you're scot free. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is that there are plenty of parents that need before school care, yep. plenty of parents of school age kids that need before school care and after school care, right. and that's still expensive, you know. Right. And there's also parents that don't work regular hours right. that maybe work weekends, um, and so the child- Care for Working Families Act would help them pay for all kinds of care.
1: Right. I mean, that's a great point, right? Because so the school day is built around a sort of it's a kind of modified version of a grown up nine to five Mm -hmm. where you can normally do people with very normal jobs. You could normally do the drop off and then go to the office Mm -hmm. uh, and then the school day ends like too early and people need aftercare. Uh, But then lots of people don't work that schedule, right? I mean, when I get to work in the morning, the security guard is already there exactly. in the lobby, right? Exactly. And, and so you have particularly people in, in more working class occupations might need care, off those hours.
2: Yeah. And, and you know, I think proportionally those families spend a bigger chunk of their income. Childcare is just more expensive for them mm-hmm. proportionately. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think this act would also just make it more affordable for mm-hmm.
1: them. You know? Right. So, I mean, so that's like a pretty strongly progressive, right, a distributionally progressive kind of policy. And that's probably good. Um, you know, in its way, uh, giving help to to the people kind of most most in need, but then I mean, does that have anything to say about like quality? Because I mean, I know this is a big concern, particularly among you know the the thinkers <laughs> on this subject.
2: Yeah. So I think uh, the Childcare for Working Families Act. Also, I mean, we know. Let me back up. Yeah. Um, Childcare on the one side, from from the perspective of parents and mm-hmm. families, there's the issue of Getting access to affordable child care. Right. Um, from the perspective of child care workers, I think there's also the issue of their professional development um, and their compensation. Mm-hmm. Getting uh, child care workers skills that they need to, be, to provide high quality care mm-hmm. um, is something that we want to see move ahead. Okay. Um, but you also need to compensate them for that, um, for this, for these additional skills that they're learning. So the Child Care for Working Families also addresses compensation. I mean, this is
1: like one of the great, I don't know, dilemmas of life. But, but so child care is both incredibly expensive and very low paying. And whenever I hear, you know, progressive people wanting to like address both of these things simultaneously. I'm like, all right, that's good. But my, but then my but then my lizard brain is like, wait, if you pay them more, it's gonna be less affordable. I know how this works.
2: Yeah, but I mean I think then that's why we need that's why we need things like the Childcare for Working Families Act. Mm-hmm. You know, because I think that you can't just tug on one issue uh-huh. and, you know, you know, you have to sort of address it all together.
1: So this is raising the the cost structure but then putting a lot more money yes, into yeah. it.
2: Yes, it is a big investment up front. Mm-hmm. Um but I think a lack of childcare is really really affecting you know it's affecting families on an individual level um like I said before we started this conversation talking about the job sacrifices mm-hmm. that individual parents are going to individual families are making around summer care mm-hmm. it, so it's not it's costing individual families um, but it's also costing the US economy um so there was uh, an estimate that we came across um that the misalignment let's mm-hmm. call it the misalignment in in schedules between um kids school schedules and parents work schedules cost the united states about 55 billion dollars uh-huh. um, and also this lack of summer this lack of child care for parents of young children zero to three costs something comparable as well so these are you know this this lack of child care is costing the u.s economy a lot in terms of foreign wages in terms of just lost productivity so yes this could take a lot of money this would be a big investment, but we need it.
1: Yeah, I mean, this always seems persuasive to me um, that that you should spend, you know, because the other thing that's happening, right, I mean, is you see um, the just number of children that people have has gone down very sharply. And, you know, there's a bunch of reasons for that, and it's good for people to, you know, have control over what what they do in their lives. But it's like if as a society we don't make it economical, to have children, like people won't, right? And it's a very sort of fundamental um, question, I think, as a society is like, do, like, do we want people to raise families and also participate? In the mainstream economy, in a good way, and like yes, like it's very costly. Like ha- yeah. raising children is difficult, right? <laughs> it's not. It's not a trivial problem, but it's also not a not a small thing, yeah. right? To say like, well, we're just gonna like give up on society. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm for it. Um, no, but I actually wonder, almost like, why not go? This is such a – like the modern-day Democratic Party is to say, OK, well, we've got a problem. What we're going to need is like an income threshold and like a cutoff and a, and a cap and a, and a tax credit. Um, because if you went sort of full bore, like you'd waste a lot of money on families who don't necessarily need help and, and blah, 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 blah. And yet, I mean, we started this – we're talking about summer, right? It's like when the school goes away. Yeah. But that's to say most of the year at least like we have school. And like everybody goes to school.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I mean this is just sort of like a broader, a broader point. Right. Um, we just know how, how important early investments are. Mm-hmm. Um, just generally I know, um investing early um, mm-hmm. through preschool, through home visiting, um, through all of these interventions that uh, we in the early childhood co- childhood community talk about um, all of these things. Yes, you have some upfront costs, uh, but they really pay off in right. the end.
1: So, I mean, right. So uh, preschool, I think, is a great, you know, example of this. There's a lot of different ways you can organize preschool. But, like, one way you can is just instead of school starting when the kids are five, like, you start when they're four. You start when they're three, right? And you're creating... Institutions, right? Like preschools or preschool programs attached to the existing schools, and that's a that's a more expensive way of doing it than like saying, "Well, we'll defray the cost of whatever you sort of choose to enroll your child in, as long as you're making less than you know 400 of the poverty line." But it it feels to me like there's a value. There's not just like a value in making the investment, but there's a value in like doing the work to create the institution that that everybody uses
2: yeah, well, you know, and I think, um, again, to talk about the Child Care yeah. Working Families Act, so it, it builds on things that we already have in hmm. place. Um, so it builds on the Child Care Development B- Block Grant okay. um, and just really increases that. So the Child Care Development Block Grant yeah, how does helps, that work? Yeah, so the Child Care Development Block Grant helps uh, make child care affordable to low-income families um, by helping provide subsidies. Um, but it's been chronically underfunded for decades and decades. Okay. Um, and so the Child Care for Working Families Act builds on this. It makes the the subsidy more generous okay. and it also makes more families eligible for okay. it. So it also makes um more middle income families eligible for it.
1: but wait, can we can, can we get weedsy like what what, <laughs> what 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 is a block grant who and who who gets this block grant? like how
2: I think just in general, the child care development block grant it's This flexible pot of money that goes to states and and territories and Mm -hmm. um, tribal associations, Um, and it's to provide early care and education—not It's just early care and education. It's to provide child care um, for low-income families. Uh, It has been chronically underfunded, Mm -hmm. and so it currently only serves, I think, like one in six eligible families.
1: Okay. So the idea is to both increase the number of people yes. who get served and also increase the number of people who are eligible. Yes. And it's one of these like federal state implemented by the states but with federal money put in yes. and some some kind of rules on it.
2: Exactly. America is very <laughs>
1: it's very complicated. <laughs> So actually, I, I want to ask about how this uh, this sort of works in in care for working families. Because what's what's appealing about this is that it's very sort of comprehensive in the full range of things where we normally think about, you know, after school as like one topic and summer care as another topic and child care for children who are too young for school yep. as another other topic. And part of that, though, is that the actual providers for these services are different. Right, right. One thing that is true about childcare for kids who are too young for school is mm-hmm. that there are really some really good programs out there for it. Right, not everybody can get into them or get mm-hmm. access to them, but it sort of exists, right? And you can sort of expand the the pool based on those kinds of models. But what do we do? We have anything or, or know anything for? for like summer and these like around the school gaps that's that's like that's good because it's, it's it seems like obviously a sort of an institutional problem to create a high quality summer program just in the sense that you would then not exist necessarily for the rest of the the, the year right i mean fr- from the provider side if i was like okay i want to do something i want to work with children yeah. i want to employ good people i want to train them up
2: yeah, you know, and, and I think that that's again this isn't this is like harkening back to some of the conversations <laughs> that I had with some colleagues um just chatting about summer care. Right. Uh, as we do. And you know, I think that was another thing that they were that they were that they were saying. So on top of just parents trying to scramble to, f- mm-hmm. to find arrangements, some of these summer programs are also scrambling to do personnel and to staff up and to put their infrastructure in place, you know? Right. And so I think that that's, other, that's another consideration, um, which I think could potentially contribute to this feeling of shortages around available options during the summer months. And
1: this seems like an area where sort of fundamentally state and local Governments are going to need to take a look at if there's anything they can do. I mean, the, the federal government does a lot in early right. childhood and <laughs> education in general, but it's primarily in terms of making money available to things. That The federal government doesn't run schools, right? Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, they're not going to realistically, right, under anybody's sort of – vision of this, right? Whereas like, you know, we're saying in d c parks department it has a summer thing, yeah, like maybe it could be bigger. you know maybe if if families had more money available, like that would create the resources to expand the program. but that's who kind of takes the the lead on these issues, right yeah, and, yeah and is there any place that you know of that does something resembling a a good job of of dealing with this? Are there state or city you know, it was like Oklahoma, right it was like, the leader in preschool?
2: Yeah. um, It's harder to sort of know... Because I think it's also so varied, you know. Right. So going back to 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 another thing that I said earlier, you know, just the number of options and the number of arrangements and the number of kids that are not that are no longer in regular care during the summer months mm-hmm. that increases so much, you know. Right. And so I think that it's so irregular, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and it's probably so irregular even within a particular community that and there's so much variability there, right? right. That it's probably really hard to be able to say, aha, like this city, this community is doing sure. the right thing. So The
1: know? first the first time I ever wrote that I thought, you know, we should, I, I had a very crude idea, which was we should just run the schools all year round. Um, but people got, people got kind of mad at me. I mean, not, <laughs> not people who were pointing out the like technical budgeting issues or like we would need more air conditioners, but just like conceptually the idea of getting rid of you know, the summer vacation yeah. was very was very upsetting, and th- that's what I wonder. Also, from from your your sort of your survey research, like, were people experiencing this as like as like a bad thing, or were they excited that you know Getting, kids, kids are playing more soccer? Or whatever.
2: <laughs> you mean parents seeing. Summer as exciting, yeah. um You know, I think it's mixed feelings. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that in the surveys that we did, um, I think parents just saw it as like, here it is, like this is the reality that we have to deal with, you uh-huh. know. But you know, we did get some free responses, and people people provided adi- additional details to uh-huh. some of the responses. Um, you know, and some of the things that we saw there, we had one person say, uh, "I'm going to be taking the day shift." and my partner is going to be working nights. So then we have one person home with our kids throughout the whole year, throughout the whole day. But that just means I'm not going to sleep, you know? Right. So um, you you see these patterns. Yes, that sounds bad. Yes. <laughs> it sounds
1: like it was just like, No, I mean, I guess, you know, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. I, I never want to say, well, people need to pay more attention to, uh, I don't know, like middle class people who don't have such serious problems in life. <laughs> but I mean, but I do wonder about it, right? So you know, I mean, I know a lot of people, they can afford to enroll their kids in these different camps. And, like, so they do, right? Yeah. And whatever.
2: Yeah, and they're lucky.
1: And yes, and, and they are lucky. It just it always seems to me, though, that, like, it's still not a great idea, right, to just, like, not have structured sort of specific pathway that people are supposed to be on. And I wonder about that from a quality standpoint, Two, right? So I mean, right now, I mean, low-income families are just like swimming without a line, right? Mm-hmm. And and they could use financial help, obviously, urgently. But also we're probably not like the best equipped to navigate a completely like unconstrained choice environment versus one where we tried to say, like, educators have looked at this and like this is what we think children should be. Doing, right? I mean, I mean, structuring, I'll put it another way, right? I mean, you look at early childhood more broadly, structuring effective programs is is difficult, right? Like it's not yeah. I like I couldn't do it.
2: Um so as far as trying to determine quality, mm-hmm. um, there are some things in place. So there's some states that have the quality rating improvement system, and it gives okay. you a roadmap of um the quality of a particular program.
1: Okay, so that's like they do an assessment, and there's a score, and then you can you can sort of take a look at, at what's actually happening.
2: Essentially, it's sort of a simplified version of it. it this is a conversation for like a, a much broader conversation. Oh, well, fair enough. But I mean,
1: that's that's fine. So there is there is something out there, there is you know, something which is good. There. Which is good. Okay, so what 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 should I be asking about? What what else do do people need to know?
2: I mean, I think uh, this is this is an issue that affects most families mm-hmm. um, because again. The majority of kids have—don't have— a parent at home who they can hang out with and go to the pool and go to the amusement park Mm -hmm. and ride bikes with um, when they're home from school. Um, So this is something that affects the majority of families. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's just some families that are just disproportionately affected by this. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, again, it's families that don't have access to paid leave, Mm -hmm. um, which more often than not are lower income families. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can't take vacation if you don't have vacation right um
1: so it's lower income families are getting it on both sides right it's like you have less money for care but also less flexibility exactly to do self-care.
2: exactly um and it's lower income families it's families that have um that don't work regular hours that don't work nine to five mm-hmm. it's also childcare in, in general um there are fewer options in some rural communities. Mm-hmm. So we do a bigger analysis looking at the child care supply across the United States. And we see that uh, child, what we call child care deserts, which mm-hmm. is sort of communities that don't have an appropriate supply of child care, range, right. or child care availability. We see that rural communities are much more likely to be child care deserts.
1: Okay. So this is basically you have a less... Lower population density, and so it's it's like it's that much harder to organize. I mean, these kind of services, right? Yeah. I mean, because I mean, it it requires a certain amount of people, right, right, to have a childcare center, and particularly to have like multiple options, Mm -hmm. right? It's so. I mean, that's interesting because obviously, I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, if you raise kids in a city. you, you get a lot of people's takes about how that's a bad idea. <laughs> um but but right. So it, so so rural areas are, are sort of disproportionately likely to have like no providers?
2: To have to not have enough providers. Uh-huh. Um so to just not have an appropriate supply, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, an mm-hmm. adequate supply. Is that just a just a question of numbers or like a a quality assessment like when you say it's not an appropriate supply
2: um in this case in particular um it is a numbers issue okay so So we're not we're not talking we're not looking at quality yet
1: (laughs) okay right so it's just like literally nothing
2: um well it just it's it's either there are no centers or it's just the number of kids like Mm -hmm. far outweighs the number of available slots right right
1: right right. okay anything else What, what what do people need to know
2: Please check out our report. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fantastic.
2: Um, no. I don't okay, that that's it.
1: great. Okay, so thank you very much, uh, Christina Navoa, um, a senior policy analyst in early childhood at the Center for American Progress. Uh, this was really great. Uh, thanks as always to our sponsors. Our producer Jeffrey Geld uh, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday.